All right. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Good to see each of you. Some of you I have not seen in over a year and did not have a chance to see you in the hallway, so I see you now, Mark. I am so excited to be here. I cannot explain to you how excited I am to be here worshiping with you this morning. Whether this is your first time with us or whether this is your hundredth time with us, we are thrilled that you're with us as well. Um, I'm Alan. I am a senior pastor and one of the elders here at Living Hope, and we are thrilled that you are worshiping with us today. If you are a guest, we would love to be able to get to know you better, and uh, Crystal did a great job of explaining the connection card. I would love for you to fill that out. There are offering boxes in the back of the room that as we are dismissed in a little bit, you can drop that offering, uh, not that offering, you can drop off that connection card in that box so we can contact you and let you know what's going on in the life of our church. Um, you may have seen me as you came in and I was wearing a mask. You may have been here last week and saw that I preached from my bedroom. It, it was a weird week. It is good to be back here in the building with you. Uh, essentially, uh, over a week ago, I was exposed uh, potentially to COVID. I got tested. I was negative, and yet I followed my doctor's orders to a T and uh, stayed in quarantine until yesterday, and now I'm out and about and I was reminded of a few things uh, this week, and that is this, just how God has fashioned us to do life together. I can't explain to you uh, how much I disliked being on quarantine, like I wanted to be out and about and moving around and with my people and having a chance to see people I work with and being a part of worship together last Sunday in the building instead of from my house, all of it just wasn't the same. And as I thought about all of that, I was reminded of a, of a few things along those lines. And that is there are some of us who are still needing to be at home for health reasons and we are praying for you. I know it can be a an aggravating, lonely road, but we are praying for you and we miss you and we look forward to the day when you can be back here. And I also thought about folks who maybe got out of the rhythm and the habit of participating in the building on Sunday mornings whenever COVID hit and it's more convenient for you and you stay at home in your pajamas and you watch our service from the house. We're glad that you're able to do that, but it's not the same as being here in this building. You see, God did not make us to go to church. God made us to be the church. And if we're going to be the church, we've got to be together. And we can't just come into the same room and hear the same dude on stage preach and then walk out the door. That's not being the church either. Being the church is being in each other's lives, loving one another, serving one another, praying for one another, checking up on one another, celebrating with one another. As someone came in this morning, I was able to celebrate with her, and I said, I hear congratulations are in order for you. And she said, why, thank you, because she had posted on Facebook that she had received a certificate this week. Her husband looked and said, what are you talking about? And he said, I guess I don't get on Facebook enough. The point is not get on Facebook. The point is celebrate with people when there's something to celebrate. Mourn with people when there's something to mourn about. Pray for one another when there's something to pray about. Let's be the body of Christ that God has called us to be. That is what I discovered this week. So I challenge you that if this is your church home, like you're here all of the time and you've not yet become a member, join the church. Let's be the church together. Originally, we were supposed to have a class today, but because of uncertainties, we canceled it. There'll be one coming up very soon. If you're not a member, join the church. If you are a member of the church, then be the church. Love one another. Serve one another. As Crystal pointed out a moment ago, jump in a hope group, one of our small groups. Serve. Come early. Stay late. Have conversations. Be the church. And if you are here because this is maybe your first time to be here, or maybe you're new to town, or maybe you're considering, is this where God wants me to be? I don't know whether this is where God wants you to be, but I do know this. God wants you in a Bible-believing church in your community, and perhaps it is this church. And if it's not, then find the right one. God made us to be in community together. 
And what a joy it is to be here on a Sunday morning, not just marking it off my list, the fact that I was here today, but that I got to come and worship with my church family. All right, I think, uh, I think a moment ago Crystal said that was free, that what she shared with you, that was free as well, and I haven't started preaching yet, so don't start timing me yet. All right. I didn't get to be in person last week. Yes, I talked a long time, but I wasn't in person, so I, got, I, had, to, I had to get some of that out this morning. All right, when you came in, hopefully you picked up a worship guide. If you're at home or if you're here in the building, you can get that by going to that QR code or by going to lhbc.net, and, and it's here. There's a lot of announcements of things going on in the life of our church. On the left-hand side, you may not know this, but on the left-hand side, it's kind of static. It's usually there always the same, just as a reminder of the things we're doing and also for our guests to kind of see what's going on on a normal basis within our church. And then on the right-hand side is changing information related to what's going on uh, announcement-wise. I would encourage you, we don't always have a chance to announce everything. We don't always announce everything correctly, so be sure and read this uh, guide. Although Crystal did announce everything correctly today, let's have some homemade ice cream next Sunday. That would be amazing. If you want to sign up to be a part of that, you can do that on our, our website. I'm still not preaching yet, by the way. Um, you can sign up on our website, or you can go to a registration desk. It's right out there in the foyer as we dismiss, and you can sign up out there. Someone will help you do that. And then on the back of the worship guide is the sermon notes for today. You can see uh, why we sang the doxology a moment ago. The title for this message is Praise God from whom all blessings flow. We're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 1. If you've got a Bible with you, be sure and grab that. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. If you're not sure where that is, that's in the New Testament. Uh, Paul, the apostle, wrote it. Uh, you can go to your table of contents and find it there as well. If you don't have a Bible with you, then there are Bibles in the chairs around you, underneath you, things like that. Grab a Bible. If you don't own one, we'd love for you to take that home as a gift from us. Also, as long as technology work, is working today, which uh, not because of our tech team, but because of some computer issues, we're, we're uh, dealing with some technology stuff, but as long as technology is working, the screens will have the words of the uh, verses as well. Um, but at the bottom of the worship guide, you'll find our reading plan. Uh, this is why I'm preaching out of Ephesians today. All year long, we're going through the New Testament, a chapter a day. This week, we'll be finishing up Ephesians and then jumping into Philippians. All right. Um, let me go ahead and get started now. You can start the clock. All right, here's the deal. When I was in seminary, working on getting my MDiv, my Master of Divinity, we had a lot of reading assignments. And, and I don't like to read if it's assigned to me, usually. Uh, I like to read the things I choose to read. I remember reading specifically uh, a theologian for one of my theology classes. And he's a German theologian, so that means it was written in German, and then it was translated into English, and it was theology. And I guarantee you this book, not all of my theology books, but this one in particular, was very difficult for me to comprehend. You see, it was filled with huge theological words, and it was filled with huge sentences, like three and four line long sentences, and it just wasn't something that I digested very easily. And this week, I thought about that because the text we're looking at today, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, is all one long sentence in the Greek. It's not multiple sentences. There's 202 words that make up this one sentence, and so there's a lot of stuff in there. And I was curious, what is the longest sentence like in English? And then I realized that book I read in seminary didn't really have long sentences. And then I realized this sentence in Ephesians is not very long either. I have no idea whether this book is something that you should read or not. I know nothing about the book, but Jonathan Coe wrote a book called The Rotters Club, and in it, one of his sentences has 13,955 words and is 33 pages long. Pretty lengthy. The reality is, in some ways, when we look at Ephesians chapter 1, to think about it being one sentence from verse 3 through verse 14 and all of the theological implications that Paul lays out for us, it can feel quite weighty, but it can feel weighty in a very good way. Let's look at this together. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. If you're in an English translation, then you see periods. If you're in your Greek translation, there's not but one period because it's all one sentence. Here's what Paul said. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ 
with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I mean, we could camp out on chapter, verse 3 alone. But verse 3 is a thesis, if you will, that then begins to unpack the rest of it, beginning in verse 4. In verse 3, he says that we should thank God or bless God because of all the spiritual blessings he's given to us, and here they are, beginning in verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. I love that word, lavish. He lavished his grace upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the, fulfill, uh, sorry, for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory in him you also when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised holy spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory that is an amazing mouthful of a sentence. As I said, verse 3 sets it all up. Verse 3 is a thesis statement, if you will, of all of the rest of the verses. I want us to look briefly at verse 3. And I, I think that we're having technical difficulties right now. There may or may not be eventually a, 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 an image that will pop up on the screen. So you may want to jot this down because I don't think it will be able to be on the screen. And that is for us to understand and apply scripture, not just this text, but any scripture that we read, in order for us to study it and understand it and apply it to our lives, we have to look for context clues. We have to look for things that will help us understand what this text means. And a big part of that is to look for words that repeat themselves or phrases that repeat themselves or key phrases that may not repeat, but yet it's a key phrase that's important for us to see. And in this text, in verses 3 through 14, there are four different things you may want to jot down that are repetitious or key phrases or ideas that we need to see in order to understand it all. The first one is this. In this text, we see an understanding of the Trinity. Yes, it's back up there. We see an understanding of the Trinity. The Trinity is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we see that beginning in verse 3, but I have FF up there because it follows throughout the whole text. Look at verse 3. We have the Trinity here. In verse 3, blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's the Son, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That word spiritual is in reference to the fact that these are given by the Holy Spirit. And therefore, in verse 3, we see the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Last week, when we looked at Colossians chapter 1, it was pretty theological as well. As we walked through it, uh, Tate was watching, uh, I didn't mean to say which son, sorry. One of my sons was watching with me as we were uh, preaching. Uh, uh, I was reminded, sorry. Uh, Selena told me this morning that uh, a pastor uh, that she grew up uh, knowing used to give his kids $5 every time he mentioned their names during the sermon. So, Tate, maybe I owe you $5. So, here's the deal. We were listen he was listening to me preach it, and he's drawing over there. And after it was over with, he brought it to me. And he had a picture, and I don't remember all the details, but basically it was Father, Son, and, and Holy Spirit, and God. And then there's a picture of a brain, and the brain was exploding. Because it's mind-blowing for us to try to wrap our minds around this idea that we worship one God. And yet we experience him in the three persons of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So this 
message is mind-blowing again because we see the repetition of this trinity here let's look at the second thing the second thing is this phrase blessed or this word blessed or blessing that word is used three times in verse three alone we see here that that that's going to be an important word we'll look in a moment at what that word means another phrase is the phrase in him or in christ or in the beloved it's the same thing it's just worded three different ways and you see on there it's used 10 times reality is it's used 10 times in english but if you look at the greek it's actually used 11 times so the fact that all of these blessings are in christ is important for us to see and then we want to see that all of this is to the praise of his glory that phrase is used three times in verse 6 verse 12 and verse 14 and it actually serves as a kind of subsections if you will of the message or the 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 information that he's sharing with us so i want you to mark those three those four things down because those phrases those key thoughts are very important for us to understand what this text is all about let's look closely again at verse three blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. As I said a moment ago, we see the Trinity here, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We also see this word blessed or blessing used three times. And I want us to see in the Greek, go ahead and put that one up. We see the Greek here. Um, You'll see the Greek for the word blessed, and you'll see the English, we may be having trouble with technology. We uh, see the English uh, transliteration of it, if you will. The word blessed or blessing is, and I'm going to, I have to look at my notes so I pronounce it right. Uh, the Greek word is, um, is eulogetas, eulogetas. Uh, it's where we get the word eulogy from. We typically think of the word eulogy being at a funeral, but it doesn't have to be used in that sense. And so definitely in this case, it's not at a funeral, but instead it carries with it to say that the father the i mean to say that god is blessed means that we sing his praises verse three says that god should be praised for who he is that he should be praised for what he has done in our life that he should be praised for all of the blessings that come from him and him alone so I want us to look at our notes. The first note you see on your sermon notes is this, that, pray, that we should praise God for all he has done for us. We see in verse 3, and then it's spelled out through the rest of it, that the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit has given us so many things. He has blessed us with himself. He has blessed us, and it's all for his glory. The fact that Paul used the word blessed to start this sentence shows us that the entire focus of this passage is the fact that we should be praising God. When we walk away from this text, let's not just walk away either being reminded of some things or learning some things or seeing some Greek words we've never seen before or go, oh, that's really cool. Let's walk away understanding the first word, tells it like it is, and we should be praising God that our lives should be about praising him. Paul divides the rest of the passage, verses 4 through 14, in three sections. And here are the book ends of those three sections. Each one of those sections will begin with the phrase, in him. And each one of those sections will finish with a common refrain. If you'll put the next slide up, we'll see the Greek of that common refrain. And that word or that phrase means, to the praise of his glory. All three of these sections begin with, in him, and finish with, with that in the Greek, which means to the grace, uh, sorry, to the praise of his glory. You may want to jot down what those three sections are, verses 4 through 6, and then verses 7 through 12, 
and then verses 13 through 14. If you forget where they end, all you got to do is look for that phrase, to the praise of his glory, and that tells you the end of each section. So the thesis of this whole sermon, the thesis of this whole text is that we should praise God for all he has done for us. Let's look at the three sections to see what we should praise God for. You'll see in your notes, the first one is that we are chosen by the Father. Verse 4 through 6. Even as he chose us in him, so there's that in him part that begins this section. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And there's the phrase that will finish it up. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Let's look at this idea that we have been chosen by the Father. We all would agree that being chosen is a good thing. I remember growing up in, in commerce and then over in White House, uh, and, and as I grew up, and especially in those elementary years, we would be in the schoolyard ready to play another game of football. Back then, it was the Cowboys and the Oilers. That tells you how far back this is. And we would pick sides. Of course, the winning team had to be the Cowboys, never the Oilers. But we would pick sides. And you, did y'all do it like we did? Like two guys were captains, and y'all stood against the wall, and you got chosen? And like you were going, please let me be picked first. And if you weren't picked, and they'd be like, ah, you never wanted to be the last guy selected because you really aren't chosen when you're the last guy. You are just, the dude is left with you. Like he's stuck with you. Um, but anyway, all that to say, it's fun to be chosen. But the fact that we've been chosen by the Father is so much more important than being chosen in a schoolyard for a football game. What does it mean to be chosen by the Father. It means that we do nothing and He does everything. This phrase is found in a couple places in verses 4 through 6. It says He's chosen us in verse 4. And then in verse 5, it says He's predestined us. And then it says later on, according in verse 5, according to the purpose of his will. It's all his doing and none of our doing. This idea of being chosen by the Father is something we refer to as the doctrine of election. I will say this, the doctrine of election is a very complex, very difficult to explain at times and oftentimes a divisive doctrine, but the reality is Scripture teaches it here and in many other places. There's no doubt whatsoever that our salvation is not based on what we do. It's based on what He has done and the fact that He has chosen us. Now, if you want me to really unpack election don't stick around here in this sermon because I want to look at the whole text. And what is this whole text about? It's about praising God. It's not about election. So this is going to be a small portion of it. And we can talk later about the doctrine of election. In fact, we may have some classes on the idea of what this is about. But I do want us to see real quickly what is meant by the doctrine of election here. He chose us. We didn't choose him. Predestined means to be decided beforehand. How far back did God elect us? How far back did God choose us? Look at the text. It says, before the foundation of the world, were you a sinner yet? No, you weren't even a glimmer in your mama's eyes or your daddy's eyes or whatever they say, because nobody was around. This was before the world came into being. Before you were a sinner. In light of the fact that you are a sinner, God chose those whom he chose. I want to be really careful here. It doesn't say he chose everyone. Instead, he chose some. That's part of the stickiness of this doctrine. But the reality is this. If Jesus is your Savior, you did not choose him. He chose you. If you've not trusted in Jesus yet for salvation, you can't do it on your own. It's only when God chooses you. 
So when I say he's chosen us, that doesn't mean 100% of, this is, uh, of us in this room, because I guarantee it, there are people in this room who have not placed their faith and their trust in Jesus. They're still placing their faith and their trust in the things they've done, or the fact that maybe their good's going to outweigh their bad, or that they're a good American, or they're a good moral person. The reality is this, our salvation comes through God and his choice of us and his predestination of us. Let me look real quickly at this phrase, according to the purpose of his will. It's found there in verse 5. The Greek would really more communicate the idea that it's his good pleasure of his will. That he is pleased to choose you. That he loves the idea of choosing you to be in relationship with him. The thing we need to walk away from in this text is that salvation is completely out of God's grace out of God's love for us that there's no effort or merit on our part that brings salvation how are we saved because the father chose us the father chose us now there are a lot of nuances what does that mean for free will what does that mean for choice what does it mean to say I choose to trust in Jesus. The reality is none of us can choose to follow Jesus short of him first choosing us. I do like this sentence I came across from John MacArthur, a, a pastor out in California. Here's what John MacArthur said about kind of the tension of election. He says this, God's election or predestination, which is the same thing, does not operate apart from or nullify man's responsibility to believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior. So he chooses us, but we're still, we are still held accountable for or responsible to believe in Jesus. Yeah, it's not our own doing, it's his. Uh, again, it's mind-blowing, okay? Election, though, is not only a privilege to enjoy, it also comes with a responsibility. Let's look at this portion of the text. In this set of verses, we see in verse 4 that he chose us. Why? That we should be holy and blameless before him. So election is a privilege. It comes with a responsibility, and that responsibility is that we would be holy and blameless. What does he mean by that? Well, positionally, when a person is chosen by the Father, trusts in Jesus for salvation, becomes a Christian or a follower of Jesus, we are now positionally holy and blameless because Christ's righteousness has been imputed or placed upon us, right? But that's not the only thing that Paul is saying here. I believe that Paul is additionally saying that practically speaking, we as followers of Jesus have a responsibility to pursue holiness as well. And as we pursue holiness, it's not, it's not um, the, res sorry, pursuing holiness is not a result of salvation, but it's the, uh, uh, sorry, sound bites will not come out good with this statement, okay? So if you do a sound bite, it's not what I meant. Let me come back. I've got it in my notes. Let me read it straight out of my notes. To pursue holiness is not the basis for salvation. Rather, it's the result of salvation. That's what I meant to say. Holiness is not the basis of our salvation. Rather, it is the result of our salvation. In other words, our sanctification, becoming more like Jesus, is evidence that the Father has chosen us and that we are growing in our relationship with him. This idea of blameless carries with it the idea of being without blemish. Does the phrase without blemish mean anything to you? If you read the Old Testament, how did they know which animals to bring for sacrifice? It was the ones without blemish, right? So whenever Paul says that we are to be holy and present ourselves blameless to the Father, that means that we are to live our lives as a life of sacrifice, a living sacrifice. All right. So I camped out longer on this section than I am on the rest. But it's important for us to see that the first thing we should bless God for is the fact that he has chosen us. And then we come to the refrain, 
the refrain in verse 6. In the, in the ESV, it says, to the praise of his glorious grace. But the reality is the word glorious in Greek is actually a noun. It's not an adjective. I believe it's better worded as it's found in the NET, which is to the praise of the glory of his grace. Either way, that's the refrain that we see over and over again. Let's look at the second thing. The second thing is, not only are we chosen by the Father, we're redeemed through the Son. Picks up in verse 7 and goes through 12. In him, that begins a new section, in him we have redemption, this him being Christ. In Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be, here's the refrain, that we might be to the praise of his glory. So the second thing to be thankful for is not only are we chosen by the Father, but we're redeemed by or through the Son. It says that redemption comes through His blood. To be redeemed means to be delivered from. It carries with it the idea of payment for ransom or to liberate. The Bible says that all of us are, are slaves to our sin. That we choose to willfully disobey God. And that that's not a mistake, that's not just a small hiccup, it's, it's sin, it's anarchy against God. And that because of our sin, we deserve death. But to say that we have been redeemed through Jesus' blood means that he paid the price. That our sins would be forgiven. It cost literally Jesus his life. Now, we know the rest of the story. Jesus did not die the way that we think of humans dying. Instead, he died on the cross, was put in a tomb, and three days later, he was raised again, overcoming sin and death and everything associated with it, bringing, as the text says here, forgiveness for our trespasses. We are sinners in need of forgiveness. And that forgiveness comes when the Father chooses us and we accept and receive the redemption for our sins through his Son, Jesus Christ. I said a moment ago that the Bible says that all of us are sinners, that the payment or what we deserve for our sin is death, that this death is physical death, yes, but bigger and more importantly than that is spiritual separation from the Father. But the good news is that that can be bridged and that Jesus paid the price to bring redemption or forgiveness of our sins by dying on the cross in our place. Again, this points to it's all God's work, right? Like I deserve death and yet Jesus died that my sins might be paid for or redeemed in, in this same section we see the words according to his purpose and his will we also see that it, it mentions predestined it's all god's work redeemed through the son my question for you this morning is have you experienced this redemption through jesus christ and him alone I'm not saying, would you sit down with me and have a conversation and say, yeah, I believe that Jesus died on the cross. I'm saying, have you trusted in him and him alone for salvation? In the book of Acts, we see that there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved except Jesus Christ. In this text, we see that we have an inheritance. Look in verse 11. In Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. This inheritance means to be made right with God. It means that we are able to be his adopted son. What does it mean 
to be his adopted son. What does it mean to say that we have an inheritance? Child number two <laughs> that I'm going to mention today. Several years ago, Ashley and I and the family had the privilege of sitting in a courtroom in Louisiana, and it was adoption day. And as we went through the process, I know some of you have gone through adoption as well. I don't know whether the judge said this to you or not. But after the judge asked many different questions and shared ideas and thoughts, right before he hit the gavel and declared that we had officially adopted our son, I remember him distinctly looking to me, and here's what he said, Mr. Pittman, if I approve this, James will be your son. He will become your heir and have every legal right to all of your possessions. And when he said that, I was like, that's what it looks like to be adopted into the family of God. That we are given an inheritance in a rich relationship with Jesus Christ in the here and now, as well as an unbelievable inheritance in heaven as we become heirs to all that he has. All of this is God's work. I said a moment ago, we see that it's his work, nothing that we do on our own. In this section, it says it's in him. It says it's through his blood. It says it's according to the riches of his grace. It says it's the purpose of him, the counsel of his will. It says having been predestined, do we see that it's not anything that we do. So how does Paul finish? Like he does with the other two sections, to the praise of his glory. Redemption is something to celebrate. Let's look at the third section. Sealed with the Spirit. Another reason to praise and bless the Father, or to bless God, is because we've been sealed in the Spirit. Look at verse 13 and 14. In him, that begins a new section, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. And how does it finish? To the praise of his glory. Let's look briefly what it means to be sealed with the Spirit. What happens after a person believes in the gospel? What happens after a person has been chosen by the Father? What happens after a person realizes the redemption that comes through the Son? We see in this text that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and he serves the purpose, it says in this text, as a seal or a guarantee. Now, this seal is not one of those uh, animals you see at SeaWorld. This is a different kind of seal. Let's consider what the word seal means. It means marked for redemption. It means to be marked for belonging to God. In the ancient world, owners would announce their ownership on things by attaching their seal to it. Perhaps in modern day era, a, 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 a rancher would place his brand on his, uh, on his cattle to indicate this is mine, I own it. If you've ever been in my office, you'll see that I have a, bill, a billion, if I can even say the word, a billion books in there, some on the floor, some on the desk, some on shelves, and then a lot more in my Kindle. I've got all of these books. I haven't read them all, but I do have a library. I've often heard that the purpose of the library is not to say that you've read them all, but that you have a volume of things available to you. But a pastor, a lot of times, whenever he would get a library, and I'll, I'll show you what it looks like on the screen, he uh, might get an embosser or a seal embosser to put on all of his books. And, and I think technology's not working right now. But you would, you would uh, do a seal. There it is. All right, good deal. It's kind of faint, but it says, from the library of, and it has the person's name. Another one I found that wasn't as good uh, quality and wouldn't show up on the screen said, uh, read it, love it, and return it. Uh, I thought that was cute. Uh, but the idea is that pastors would sometimes put a seal on there to say, hey, this is my book. And if they loaned it out, hopefully you'd bring it back. Uh, I wish I had done that uh, myself 
on my Greek New Testament uh, that I had in seminary days because somebody borrowed it. I have no idea where it is today. I have to use uh, other Greek New Testaments instead of the one I had back in seminary days. But I say all that to say the purpose of that seal is to indicate, hey, I own this. To say that the Holy Spirit is our seal that God puts on us means that we belong to him. We are his property. It also says the Holy Spirit is our guarantee. What does this word guarantee mean? In, in the Greek, uh, it's spelled A-R-R-A-B-O-N, arabone, arabone. An arabone was, back in the day, it was a deposit on a purchase that's been made. Perhaps today we would say a down payment. And when you paid this, you guaranteed that you would pay the rest. Hey, this is my first payment. More payment is coming, and you will be paid in full. And so when it says the Holy Spirit is our, our, our bone or our guarantee, it means that we have salvation whenever the Holy Spirit comes in our life, but it's a reminder that we'll receive the full payment, if you will, when we get to heaven. It, it says there in, in verse, um, verse 13, until, oh sorry, verse 14, until we acquire possession of it. We have a relationship with God whenever we've trusted in Jesus as our Savior in the here and now. But the day is coming when we will see him face to face. And the Holy Spirit is a guarantee that it's going to happen. God does not go back on his word. If the Holy Spirit is a guarantee, then you are guaranteed literally to one day be in his presence. And how does he finish? To the praise of his glory. We should praise God if we've experienced the seal of the Holy Spirit. So this whole text, verses 3 through 14, which are, is one word, oh, sorry, one sentence in the, in the Greek begins with the thesis of praise God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for the work that he has done in your life. He's writing this to believers, those who have trusted in Jesus, and he says, here are the reasons you should bless him, the reason you should praise him, because he, the Father has chosen you, because the Son has redeemed you, and because the Holy Spirit has come as your seal and your guarantee, and this should be cause for praise. You may be wondering, what are you supposed to do with this text? I want to list to you five different character traits or things to be reflective about. And I want you to think about these five characteristics and figure out how you can apply it specifically in your life. And here they are. The first response to this passage should always be a response of praise. What's the big deal about all these verses? a reminder that we have so much to praise God for. The first word in a sentence in the Greek points to the priority of that word. And this whole text began with the word blessed. Worthy of praise. So as you reflect on this text, praise God. Here's why we should praise God. If you've trusted in Jesus as your Savior, then you should, choose, should thank him for choosing you. It, you should praise him for his sovereign grace that he richly lavishes upon you. How is it that you can praise God? You think, well, I'm here on Sunday morning. We're praising God, right? We're here for the worship service, right? Well, yes. But this is a corporate worship service. We're to praise God 24-7. We're to worship God wherever we go. We should be worshiping God with a lifestyle of worship, a regular rhythm of worshiping God throughout the day by praying, by worshiping him for who he is, by Bible study, by obedience to God's word. There are many ways that you and I can and should praise the Father the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it better not just be with words that we sing in a song that's called the doxology. But it needs to be with our very lives. Here's the second response to this text. The response of humility. The reason that we should show humility is because this is all God's grace 
His blessings are undeserved. We don't deserve them at all. Howard and his daughter kind of showed us in that quick video what grace is about. That should bring us to our knees in humility to, the, to God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You see, God does not owe us a single thing. You're no better than another person. So let's show humility to God for showing us grace, and let's show humility to others by demonstrating or displaying grace to them as well. Here's the third response to this text. For lack of a better word, I chose security. We should rest in God's grace. Don't try to work to earn salvation. Don't try to work to maintain your salvation. Don't try to do something to prove to God that you are worth loving because none of us can. You see, if God chose you and redeemed you and sealed you, there's nothing you can do to get him to love you any more or to get him to love you any less. And there's great comfort and security in that truth. You see, your salvation came from before the foundation of the world, and it carries forward into eternity when we receive that inheritance that's coming our way. And so this text is very, very interesting. It walks salvation from the very beginning before the creation of the world to the end in eternity. And what is consistent through it all, and that is grace. Grace saves us. Grace sustains us. Grace delivers us. Trust and rest in his grace. Live in the truth of that grace. Quit trying to earn God's favor. Quit trying to earn others' favor. Preach to yourself on a regular basis that it's all grace. I was reminded of that this past week or two when I met with someone in my office and it just sounded like everything they were saying to me was, well, I've got to do this. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. The reality is, Rest in the security of God's grace. Now, don't stop there. The next response is not contrary to what I just shared, but it carries on what I just said. Here's the fourth response, holiness. The way we respond to this text is with holiness, a pursuit of holiness. Yes, God chose you. It was nothing you did. No, you can't earn his grace or his love. You can't do anything of your own merit. But the reality is, as Paul pointed out to us, he chose us in order that we would be holy and blameless before him. You see, God's grace is never a license to sin. Grace is never a license to sin. Rather, grace is the power to live a life of obedience. I live a life of obedience because of God's grace and through God's grace and by God's grace, not by pulling myself up by my own bootstraps. God's grace is a calling to become more and more like him. And then the fifth, not that it's the last response, it's just the last one that I came up with this week is boldness. This text should give us boldness to go out to tell others about Jesus Christ. Because if it's God that does the choosing and not me, then it's not about me making a sales pitch to them. If it's about Jesus bringing the redemption, then it's not about me convincing them of anything. If it's the Holy Spirit who brings the guarantee and the seal, then it's the work of the Holy Spirit to bring conviction in their life. And therefore, I can have more boldness to share my faith. Go share the gospel and trust God as he does the choosing and not you. It'd be a sin for me to say, I'm not going to go share the gospel with that person because he or she doesn't look like me. He or she is not from my side of the tracks. He or she does not cheer for the right team. He or she doesn't vote the right way. He or she fill in the blanks. We have no role in choosing go spread the gospel liberally to all those you encounter and let god handle 
the choosing portion. So who in your family can you share the gospel with? Who in your classroom can you share the gospel with? Who on your team can you share the gospel with? Who in your neighborhood needs to hear the gospel? Who at your workplace needs to hear the gospel? Who in your fraternity or your sorority do you need to share the gospel with? In your regular, everyday life, be bold to share the gospel because it's all God's work and not ours. So, let me leave you with the final thought. Go back to the very first word, blessed, or first, first phrase, blessed be God. Let's praise him and worship him. And let's look at the last phrase in the text, to the praise of his glory. You see, our salvation and our lives are ultimately about bringing praise and glory and honor to God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's why here at our church, we talk about being a disciple, making disciples, being the church, but it doesn't stop there. It's to the glory of God. This morning, I'm going to lead us in prayer. At the end of the prayer, uh, because I'm wearing a mask and that can be a barrier, I've asked Howard, one of our other guys on staff and one of our elders, to come and pray with you. If you'd like to come and pray with him in just a moment, he'll be available here. Uh, if you want to talk to me, I'm available too. I'll just be wearing a mask in there at the front row. If you want to come and pray at the altar, it's there. If you want to pull a connection card out of the chair near you and fill out the spiritual decision you're making. If you want to send us an email. If you want to pray there at your seat. But here's the deal. God is calling you. God has chosen some of you and you've not responded to that choosing of you. Say yes to Jesus. Receive the redemption that's available through Jesus Christ and his blood. And experience the thrill of the seal, of the guarantee of the Holy Spirit, of what God is going to do in your life. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, we thank you for a chance to praise and honor you this morning. God, I pray that it would not be empty words, that it would not just be a song on our lips, but that it would actually be uh, the, the, the heartbeat of our very lives. Father, I pray that you would make your voice very clear this morning, that you'd get me out of the way. And that the Holy Spirit would convict people who have not trusted in you for salvation that today would be the day of salvation. I pray that they would immediately say yes to you, knowing that it's actually you doing the choosing, you doing the work, all through your grace. Father, I pray for folks in this service that are not living holy lives. They've experienced the grace of salvation. They've experienced redemption through, his, through the blood of Christ. They have the seal of the Holy Spirit in their lives, but they're not living in a way that reflects that truth. Father, I pray that you'd bring conviction this morning. God, have your way in this place. And to you be all the glory and honor and praise. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us?